How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. That was so good. It really been a while. It's, it has been a while. I don't know if you noticed, but Tom had to like take his earphones off a little bit because he had anticipated <laughs> what was about to happen. Yes. I would have appreciated a warning. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Sorry about that. We have to remember that next time in our pre-show. Um, yes. How have you been doing, Mark? What's been going on? Doing, doing well. Doing well. How about yourself? You had some good news today, huh? I good did. Stuff. I was honored with the Massachusetts Nurses Association. Human Service Award to 2023 today for Drug Story Theater. Awesome. I'm, I'm so honored and proud. And, you know, I just need to thank, um, you know, my my executive director, Nicole Conlon, and my chief operating officer, Kathleen Wright, but really all the kids uh, who were in the show. Um, it's amazing. And, and as you know, we are now building a new show. So we will be out starting rehearsals in Worcester, so if anybody is interested in uh, participating, we're looking for teenagers in the early stages of recovery from drugs and alcohol. You do not need to be completely sober at this point, but if you're just interested in that process, go to our website, www.drugstorytheater.org. And that's theater with an ER, because sadly, so many of our kids wind up there. But come and check it out. I would really appreciate it. And Tom was there today filming. So thank you for doing that, Tom. Boy, well, you really, you really set the stage for that, Tom. I'm, don't make I, I out on this, but I, but but given all of that, I wonder whether you could introduce our guest for tonight. Of course, Doctor Joe. Tonight we are honored to have Mr. Josh Olson. Josh Olson is an Oscar-nominated American screenwriter and podcaster, known for writing the 2005 film A History of Violence. Other writing works include the adaptation of Harlan Ellison's The Discarded, the first draft of Jack Reacher, and the canceled Peter Jackson Halo movie. I did not know that. What we wound up with was so much better. Olson wrote two seasons of the audio drama Bronzeville, which is produced by and stars Lawrence Fishburne and Lawrence Tate. He is one of the hosts of the film interview podcast, The Movies That Made Me, along with director Joe Dante. Olson co-hosted The West Wing Thing alongside comedian Dave Anthony, and the duo now hosts The Audit on the Lever News Network. In 2020, Olson started Rainy Day Podcast with Mick Jagger, Steve Bing, and Victoria Perriman. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's incredible. Thank you so much for being here. I mean, that is an incredible bio. What, what's it like just to hear that? Um, it's, it's like, oh, you've got Wikipedia is what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah no i you know it's it's uh i don't i don't know man it's 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 my life it's weird it's um you know <laughs> i've i've done some stuff uh but it's um you know a lot of a lot of great memories i i the only thing i would want to uh um just uh, amend to that is that i didn't just uh adapt a harlan ellison story i adapted it with harlan ellison i'm the mm. only living person to ever write with him and um we were we were the best of friends up until his death and I'm very proud of all of that. Uh, but yeah, well, it's uh, 
I stay busy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds. And how did you actually get started in all of this? Um, it that's a hard question because you know I moved to L.A. in the '80s to go work on movies with an eye towards eventually becoming a writer, and there was literally nobody who knew me back in Philadelphia who would be surprised to hear that. So hmm. it was just kind of always the direction I was going. Um, and, even uh, as a, even a little kid in high school and college. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I was always, I was always a movie buff. <clears throat> I had an amazing, 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 amazing ninth grade teacher named Janet Goldstein, who is still alive, who in ninth grade uh, saw something in me. And um, honestly speaking of Harlan and gave me, uh, a collection of Harlan Ellison short stories. And I got about halfway through it. And I was like, I, I will be a writer. This is what I want to do. And um, combining that with my love of movies, obviously it became pretty clear where, where I was going to end up. And uh, um, I mean, I could spend an hour talking about that because like through, through my work, I eventually got to know Harlan. I got to work with him. We got to be great friends with him. And um, uh, it's, it's still mind boggling to me that any of that happened. And I have, I have gotten to thank my English teacher, Janet, uh, many, many times, which um, it's a wonderful thing because I, my mom's a teacher too. And my stepmother's a teacher and my sister's a teacher. And it's just like, there is a profession that cannot be glorified enough in this mm -hmm. world. There are so many people, I am one of them, um, where your life would have been just something completely different if it were not for one teacher who paid attention and cared. It is so true that one person who sees that value in you can can just change everything that small yeah. change so that's great okay so thanks for going so you so you get out to la no one fully is surprised you're out in la yep and then i just i kind of i fell into my first job on a movie um so it's a, it's a long convoluted story but i i ended up getting a job as a production assistant which is you know a gopher on a movie called masters of the universe the live action he-man uh movie and um, uh, in the art department. And I spent several years working in the art department on other movies and doing other crew stuff, all while working on my writing. And then uh, eventually in kind of the mid nineties uh, started making enough money writing in a whole market that doesn't exist anymore, kind of straight to video kind of B movies. Um, you know, in the sixties and seventies, they had been drive-in movies in the eighties and nineties, they were straight to video. And then while I was doing that by day, uh, by night, I was writing scripts that I was hoping to sell the studios and break into that, that system, which eventually I did um, in about 2002, uh, which led to, you know, sort of bigger, bigger jobs, eventually writing history of violence and, and a bunch of other things. I mean, the, you know, the thing I would say when you read that, that bio on Wikipedia, there's, there's a big gap in terms of having stuff made. And it's a frustrating thing because the business I'm in, um, it's, it's just a sad reality. And people think like, oh, he's not working anymore. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm working all the time. It's just, uh, you know, I still, I get paid to write stuff all the time. It's just like a lot of times this stuff doesn't get made and there's God, a million reasons movies don't get made, but um, yeah. And I've just sort of like stayed in and, and gotten to keep at it. Uh, got very fortunate with history, which was my first um, movie that got, that got produced. Uh, I mean, it was just an amazing experience all around um, a, a project. I loved a, a script that meant everything to me. We got one of my favorite directors in the world on board. We got the lead actor I had written it for came on board. The movie came out um, not, not just the way I wanted it to actually better. And, um, and then they started like nominating us for awards. Um, I'm not being me being us. I mean, a bunch of us, you know, uh, William Hurt and so forth. And uh um, it was just, it was incredible. And I'd, I'd been at it long enough 
that when it was starting to happen, when the movie was starting to happen, I knew it was a once in a lifetime or possibly once in a lifetime experience. So uh, I made a point of just fully experiencing it to the best uh, of my ability. And um, it was just an amazing, amazing journey. I'm curious, as, as you're in that production mode, are you rewriting for for the performers or anything? Or not, not that one. Um, we ended up, there were only a couple of drafts of it. There was a draft I wrote and then the studio loved it, went out, tried to find directors. Then we got David and then he and I sat down and talked about it for a while. And then I wrote another draft and that was essentially the shooting draft. And I got to go out and hang out on the set for a while because, you know, you have an opportunity to watch David Cronenberg direct a movie, your movie, um, you you take it. And I spent about two weeks there and got to got to see him work, got to know the actors, got to just see the whole thing happen. It was absolutely amazing. Wow. It sounds amazing. And and we're so privileged to have you here and, and listening to the history that, that got you over there to L.A. and in the business but off off air we were talking about um something tom you, you were reading something well yeah josh and i uh set him up up for the show we were talking about you know the stories with russell brand and you know just the whole ongoing saga of abuse in the entertainment industry and josh recommended he didn't recommend it he brought up a book called burn it down that i listened to an excerpt of and it's yeah, I mean, I'll lay it out as as she would probably want it to. It, it's it's a book by a reporter named uh, Maureen Ryan, and um, it got some heat a couple months ago. There was an excerpt before, right before it came out in Vanity Fair, and it was a whole story of Lost and all the things that had actually gone on behind the scenes of the show, and kind of the chaos, and then the kind of very uncomfortable racism with which some of the black actors and characters were treated. And it was a really interesting article, and um, I remember being insufferable when it first came out because i was that guy who about three four episodes into lost when it was on was like they don't know where they're going it's a waste of time to stick with the show and also it's kind of weirdly racist and all my friends were going ah you're crazy and Re retroactively yeah it was. yeah then this article comes out and it's like oh look they didn't quite know where they were going and oh dear they were kind of racist weren't they <laughs> and um and you know that'd be primed and the and the book was a big deal at least here in in the business and the book came out and it's kind of um, a chapter by chapter kind of breakdown of scenarios like that one of mostly from TV shows of kind of bad experiences and and kind of um, abuse, uh, you know, misogyny and racism in, in film and TV. And as I read it, I got more and more frustrated because um, it was attempting, I guess, to to eventually lay out a prescription for how to fix things. And as I kept going, I realized every single story in here is about a powerful abuse of white guy. Hmm. And I need to be really clear because this stuff is always very tricky to talk about. There's a ton of powerful abuse of white guys in Hollywood. Um, you know, Hollywood has for, for a century been dominated by, by a lot of bad people, also some very good people. What I found frustrating as I kept going was that it never went beyond that. It's um, there are people, for instance, who look at the Harvey Weinstein story and they take away from it a couple of things. One is like, thank God we got rid of him. It's like things are better now, which is half true. Thank God we got rid, got rid of him. Yes. Um, but these there's still all sorts of abuses going on. And there's very little introspection about how he was enabled. Kind of the same thing with Cosby uh, at the time. I mean, that was a experience where I had a sort of triple whammy. I come from West Philadelphia, which was Bill Cosby's neighborhood. I went to Temple University where Bill Cosby went to, and then I went into show business. So 
the news that Bill Cosby was a deeply unpleasant person was something that I had grappled with probably in my childhood. I didn't know the extent to which, uh, you know, he was this awful monster, but, um, you know, so when the news finally broke, uh, there were a lot of us, in fact, a friend of mine was a journalist who had tried to run the story years earlier and no one would carry it. It, it, it wasn't news to an awful lot of people in the business. And the thing that always concerned me is that it, there were all these sort of sighs of relief and people who were condemning him who were, um, you know, in a position to certainly have known. And there's no way that someone like Bill Cosby could have operated as long as he did the way he did without a slew of people who were making a lot of money off of him. And going to bed every night in very expensive houses, praying that tonight isn't the night they get the phone call. You know what I mean? And so there's a kind of complicity that rarely, if ever, gets talked about seriously. And then in reading this book, it's just so utterly focused on making the point that, you know, it's it's men and it's sexism and it's sexual abuse that's the problem at the core of Hollywood. And I realized as I was reading it, because uh, she never gets into sort of abuse of women and abuse of power by women. And it became clear that she thinks abuse is a subset of misogyny, whereas I would argue misogyny is a subset of abuse. Hmm. And, um, you know, and I I started my business my, when I was first in the business, I, I worked um, with several big women producers at a time when there weren't that many. And a couple of them were among the best people I ever worked with. And a couple of them were among the absolute worst human beings I've ever encountered. And who's kind of abuse, um, certainly not the Harvey Weinstein kind, but falls into the Scott Rudin school, um, you know, where I've, I've heard no sexual allegations against him, but, you know, the physical abuse and, and emotional abuse and, you know, trying to destroy people's careers and so forth and throwing coffee cups and so forth. And there's a lot of that. And as, as women have grown in power in this business, obviously there's become more of that as there naturally would. And um, it's just, it's a frustrating thing to read something like that, that is just reinforcing these notions that I don't think you solve the problem by solving part of the problem. I don't think you solve the problem by uh, pretending it's something other than what it is. And, you know, that a lot of powerful men show their abusiveness, show their, their nature through physical abuse, through sexual abuse, um, people get so caught up in that they lose sight of the fact that there are other forms of abuse and it's not just men. Uh, and, and that was really frustrating. And then there were sort of assumptions made and it was all this kind of, um, you know, I got, I get very disconnected from kind of mainstream Democrat politics, especially in 2016, where, you know, we ran this candidate who was kind of, you know, deeply unpopular in all sectors and who, you know, I had as a progressive or as a leftist in the nineties kind of sworn I'd never vote for another Clinton again, as long as I lived. Um, and we were told that, first of all, we, um, you know, if you didn't support her, it's because you're sexist, uh, in spite of the fact that countless, you know, women, especially younger women were supporting her. Um, and then there was this odd thing where they kept coming back to like, she's qualified, she's qualified, she's the most qualified. And I realized that's a, it's playing into, um, a real thing. I mean, again, it gets tricky when you talk about this stuff because it sounds like you're sort of denying the reality of these things. But I remember having a conversation with both my mother and my sister-in-law, both of whom are, are older uh, women. Obviously, my mother's obviously older than me, uh, talking about how they felt this almost primal biological pull to vote for Hillary Clinton uh, because of the kind of the, the 
the message she was putting forth. And then they kind of snap out of it and go, oh, my God, yeah, she's Hillary Clinton. I can't vote for that. Um, you know, I believe in healthcare. I believe in all kinds of things that she doesn't. Uh, and um, it's it's a strange thing because the she's most qualified uh, argument is not about politics because that's not how you pick someone for political office. I don't vote for anybody because they have a better political resume than their opponent. Um, I'm from Philadelphia. You know, the first political campaign I was ever involved in as a child um, was was when we elected our first black uh, mayor, Wilson Good. Um, and he was running against Frank Rizzo. And Frank Rizzo had by far uh, a better resume than Wilson Good. <laughs> there's there's nothing, there's no moral, you know, quality that's conferred upon you by having a better resume. But what that was tapping into was the fact that there were so many women, and I know tons of them, my wife, my mother, my sister, who have been in situations where the resume is what matters. You're up for a job, and they have lost those jobs to men who are less qualified. And she was using that language to kind of shift it over to politics where it's less essential and trying to kind of convince people that this that you are somehow striking a blow for feminism if you elect a woman president, even if her politics are kind of appalling, even if um, there are other people running who have a lifetime of, um, you know, working towards policies that you believe in. And it, it, there was kind of a cultural shift as a result of that. And this book feels like part of it. Um, you can interrupt me anytime. I apologize. I'm, well, I was just going to say, when I hear qualified, it's it's almost like saying, well, they're so articulate, like where it's like an empty, at at best, empty kind of platitude. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, I mean, my God, um, you know, uh, George George Bush was wildly qualified to be president. Um, he had an incredible resume going back to the CIA. And, you know, I mean, it's like not a fan of him either. <laughs> but but this idea of abuse, it, I agree, it's, it's not just the violence, aggression, or the sexual abuse. But yeah. what, what's your experience been? Have you had experience personally where you felt so different than your ninth grade teacher who just saw everything great? Here's, yeah. Sounds like there's, there's a hierarchy of people at, at, at every level that want to become an obstacle that, that, that devalue a person. Sure. Is that been yeah. your experience? Oh yeah. And everybody has experienced that. And it's, it's, and I won't even begin to pretend that it's as bad for, you know, a straight white man in Hollywood as it is for women or for people of color, of course. Um, uh, it's obviously worse. There are more opportunities and there are fewer doors, although um, at least in the case of, of women, I think the many more doors have, have become open in the last couple of decades here. But um, yeah, I mean, there's just people who uh, look, the, the business attracts um, a lot of aberrant personalities. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm sure I'm one of them. It's, you know, we want to, we want to play with toys and make up stories for the rest of our lives. You know, um, you know, we're show people or just we're odd. So you know, I've long since gotten over the fact that, like, it never surprises me that I look around at my friends and they're all odd. Uh, but, but, but that can also manifest in really bad ways too. And there's people who get into it for power and, and um, you know, who kind of lack empathy, which is odd because it's such a collaborative medium too. Like when it works, when you're when you're working on something with people that's getting made that you're all in it together. It's just it's the greatest thing ever. 
Um, well, I mean, just just looking at the credits of of a TV show or a movie, I mean, it's yeah hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, it's always it's just astonishing to me. Yeah, how many yeah. people it takes to basically create something together, and yet then there are these people who have more power, more influence. Yeah. Well, there's also there's a thing I noticed this early on too. Um, when I was doing crew, people love to use war analogies about making movies, especially it's like making a movie is like fighting a war. Hmm. And, you know, I've worked on some low budget films. I've worked on some big budget films. I've had movies where you're exhausted, where you're out in the mud, where there's all kinds of horrible conflicts going on. And I have never been to war. Hmm. I know for a fact war is worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and there's something about that analogy though that people love to buy into, and it's a way of kind of romanticizing yourself, and that tends to also instill a kind of sense of like just enormity to what you're doing that doesn't quite isn't quite justified, so that people who are in the way of getting things done the way you want them done, um, you know, they're they're not just someone you need to get through to. There's not just somebody you need to find a way to collaborate with. Uh, they can be somebody you need to destroy is I think the mentality. And that's, yeah. that's it's one of the, my phrases, it's not always your anger that gets in the way of success. It's very often somebody else's anger that gets in the way of your success. Yeah. And there's, um, but there's also a thing too with this where it's like, and I get it. It's very easy to, to make the case uh, that, that she's making in this book. And I've been heartened, you know, especially the last couple of months I've been, in a situation you may have heard in the news uh, that uh, my union was on strike for a little while. Yeah. We, um, Wait, what? there were, you know, more of us talking to each other than normally happens. And it was interesting because the book was a topic of discussion for a while uh, among a lot of writers on the line. And it was hard to see how many people were frustrated with it for the same reason. Cause um, I just, it, it, there's a segment in it that just really, kind of boggled my mind that I could never get past where it's not even the main focus. She, there's like one paragraph and she describes a scenario in which a young black woman is working on a TV show. She walks by the office of the showrunner and the showrunner is among other things, the head writer, the primary creative force of the show. If your audience doesn't know. And the showrunner who is a man was on the telephone with a network executive who's a woman. And he, um, I believe he told her to shut the F up and then slam the phone down on her. And the whole point of the paragraph was, A, this, this young black woman going, that's a kind of privilege I'll never have. And the other point is that this guy is, we're meant to believe, just naturally terrible and abusive. Yeah. And I'm thinking about it. And first of all, there are increasingly, and this is a good thing, incredibly powerful uh, women of color in our industry. I do not know Shonda Rhimes. I don't know anything about uh, how she used to work with. I've, I've, I've never heard, certainly never heard a bad thing. I've heard plenty of good things. But you can't tell me that Shonda Rhimes has never in her life uh, told a network executive to get stuffed because these are the people who give you notes. These are the people who very often are getting in the way of your creativity. And historically speaking, even outside the business, we're all primed and, and set to identify with the artist in that scenario. Yeah. And she was turning on her head in this weird way where we're like, we're supposed to despise the artist and embrace the executive simply because of their genders. And I'm reading that and I'm like, 99% chance the executive he's talking to had just given him a terrible note or had told him he had to do something that was really stupid. That's There's always another perspective to this. There may yeah. be a perspective. Mark, any of this resonate with you in, in, in the field of law? 
surely there are no power differentials there. None. Zero. <laughs> yeah, Very obviously. Yeah. But it resonates. I mean, that that's the thing about this is we're, we're unfortunately looking at a, a rather human condition where, where humans create hierarchies. Um, and there's somebody who wants to have more power than somebody else. And yet we've been doing it for so long. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. Josh, the writers just went through a whole mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, what can you tell us a little bit about that and the strike? Yeah. I mean, that was about, um, you know, the AMPTP, uh, wanting to basically crush us and, uh, it was really interesting. It was different from, I was here for the last strike, uh, in, in 07. Um, because this time it, it's, you know, far more, the business is far more controlled, um, by, you know, wall street, um, by, you know, hedge funds, by hmm. people who are, you know, even, even in 2007, when we were like, you know, up against these kind of like awful cold murderous mercenaries who wanted to crush us. It's like, yeah, but they want to make movies. <laughs> you know and some of these people just don't care and um you know, some the of the current people some, some of the current, current people, people yeah just don't care. and the word existential got tossed around a lot but it was true we were striking for our ability to continue to work for a living mm. and what was interesting this time there's a lot of good lessons and i think you know we're in the middle of uh, or at the beginning of let's say this incredible labor uh movement in america and we were all very proud to be part of that and um um, you know, to see the auto workers going out, to see, uh, um, you know, Kaiser uh, going out the other day. Uh, I mean, all this stuff. This is like people starting to recognize what's happening and realizing that. And I believe this to my soul that like, you know, the only real power we have uh, is when we stand together. And and the labor movement is like the living embodiment of that. And I'm very, very proud to be a member of my union. But it was interesting to watch this time because we had... Um, the fact that they wanted to basically wipe us out behind us. There was in fact, a, an article leaked out in which an unnamed executive had said, we're waiting until people start losing their homes and then they'll come back to us. Hmm. I honestly, I want to give a shout out to whoever that was. Cause it's not like we were lagging at that point. We were doing fine, but boy, I have never seen anything like the jolt of energy that gave people there's, you know, if there was one person who went, Oh my God, I have to stop supporting the strike. There were a thousand people who were like, I should be out of the line tomorrow and every freaking day. And it's interesting because, and we also had social media in a very real way, which um, we didn't have last time to this extent. There was a moment when uh, the AMPTP hired a big PR firm to come in and kind of help them with their image. And it was just so funny to watch because they're like, what is a PR firm? Well, they're essentially, you know, some highly paid writers who are coming in to help them spin the story. And it's like, Wow, you have five highly paid writers helping you. Guess how many guess how many incredible writers we have willingly working for free right now. It's like you're it's insane. You're you're fighting a battle you can't win. And what was really interesting is the way it went. Um, you know, we settled recently, we voted 99% to to take the uh to take the agreement. And it's it's from my perspective, I think it's a good agreement. Um, I'm not that guy. I don't go down to the granular level with it. I'm uh, I have friends who do. I've heard you know, I've heard people ranging from it's good to it's great. Um, and the thing that's interesting to me at that discussion that doesn't get talked about very much, and I wish would get talked about more, is, yeah, we got what we need. It's an agreement we would have taken in the first week. Huh. What happened is uh, 
those guys are the other, the folks across the table lost somewhere in the vicinity of half a billion dollars and got literally nothing. They could have dealt with us in the first week. And I have been trying and I've been talking to people like, is there some angle? Is there some version of reality where they went back to their offices and went, ha ha, we got what we wanted. And it's like, there isn't, they got their, forgive me, their asses handed to them on a plate. They're trying to do it again with SAG. And what's really interesting to me is that puts us in a position next time to be even tougher in our demands. Cause you know, they may be chuckling that we didn't get the ultimate version of the agreement we wanted, but they got nothing that they wanted and they got pounded. And I'd, I would imagine that a few months from now, after the dust is settled and people aren't making the connection, you're going to start seeing a lot of heads rolling um, in those corporate offices over this. So that's. Well, so what, what was it that, that was agreed to? Can you, you know, Oh, I mean, there's, there's, a, mostly, there's a lot of TV stuff and you should probably have somebody on TV coming in and I'm going to even hook you up with them and kind of go through the nitty gritty of it. But, you know, a lot of it was just simply about equitable pay and equi equitable representation. Um, the AI issue was a very big one for us, um, much bigger for, for actors um, and sadly much bigger for directors who did not seem to understand that and, and just made a deal instantly. But at one point, the um, what they were trying to do was create a scenario whereby, you know, they weren't looking to erase us, but what they would do is, you know, so Dr. Joe, you're a big successful screenwriter and you have a particular voice and you get paid, you have a rate and you get paid that rate. And that rate is big uh, to write a movie. And that rate is, let's say it's X, a big percentage of that rate you get paid when you deliver your first draft and then you deliver the second draft. Then there's a rewrite, which is a smaller percentage. And then there's a polish, which is a smaller percentage than that. That's kind of the general deal. They're not looking to erase you. What they're looking to do is take all the Dr. Joe scripts that have that voice that we love, that the people love, and then take a topic they want to write about. Dr. Joe wants to write about a lawyer turned hitman. We would like to do a movie like that. And they basically feed all your scripts into AI. They give it a topic and out comes a clunky, bad script that for the most part of times reads kind of like a parody of a Dr. Joe script. But every now and then there'll be a little bit where you're like, oh, that's pretty good. And then what they want to do is they want to hire you at your polish rate to come in and polish that script, which is about 10, 15% of what you would have made to write the script originally. And they were fine with that. And obviously we were not. Um, and that was a huge deal. And we got them to the point now where they can't, they can't use AI. Uh, on, on scripts we can i mean it's a, it's a tool it's a tool we can use if i you know if i can find a way to punch enough commands into ai that it pushes out a great script that looks like i wrote and i want to slap my name on it that's fine they'll you know they'll either see through it and realize it's terrible and stop hiring me or they'll go hey, it's pretty good and they're they're paying for the sensibility if nothing else but they can't do that to us they can't just hire you know their mac laptop to write a script instead of hiring you so, so the AI part, you know, putting all this data in and something spitting out, but how about with you? What's your creative process yourself? Because you've got all this experience. How does the creation come out of a writer like Josh Olson? I cannot possibly be the first writer you've had on this show. Um, yeah, but Josh Olson, absolutely. I well, I've been at it for 30 years. And the one thing I know for absolute certain is I have no idea. Um, it's always different. 
Yeah. Uh, it's always something, it's always something, you know, sometimes I'm driving through a place I've never been and I go, what would it be like to live here? And sometimes it's, you know, in the case of history of violence, I had read the book it was based on at the time. And I had, you know, we came out a little bit earlier and I was like, damn, I love the title. I love the premise. I would have written something else. And eventually just through happenstance, I got the opportunity to do that. I got to write the version I would have written. Um, sometimes it just falls out of you. Sometimes you, you have to pull it, but it's always, it's always different. It's always different. Um, I yeah, I, I mean, I I find that there are times where I just can't write anything, yep. and then something happens, and boom, like stuff just pours out. You know. Yeah, I mean, I find if I'm working for you know if I'm actually working like for pay, um, or even if I'm just eager to get something done. Uh, you know, for, for what it's worth, my, my solution to the the thing you're talking about is I, I just, and it's hard to do. Um, and I don't mean that. I don't mean to say it's hard for me to write badly. It's hard for me to consciously write badly. You know what I mean? Mm. I can write something that's terrible. I'm sure. And you'll all go, my God, it's awful. But, but you sit there and you're like, it's not coming. And, and the thing I have to force myself to do is just, just write, write the bad version. Mm. There's a, there's a version of you that has lost all inspiration and creativity just right. And I find that almost every time, by the time you're done, you're sort of back in that groove. You go back, you look at it. That's like, Oh, it's actually okay. Or, and now I'm in a place where I can go back and fix it and make it good. But I think the toughest thing with anything is giving your permission to suck, giving yourself permission to suck. Um, and the nice thing is where no one ever gets to see that. Hmm. Again, the script in ideally they love the script. No one understands that there were days where like I was writing stuff that was so bad you would fire me and badmouth me to everybody in the business. <laughs> and what about the rewrite? Do, do you ever get sort of stuck like like going too deep, like uh, not being happy with like that one word or and, and oh yeah, yeah. just saying just 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 take it, take it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. And there, there's times where you get really sick of it and that's, that can be dangerous too. Cause sometimes those are the times when you need to really bear down and do the work, but sometimes it's your, you know, it's, it's, it's the person inside your brain who's actually doing the work, trying to like screaming at you going, no moron, you're done. <laughs> and you have to figure out how to listen to those kind of cues, but it takes, took me a long time to learn to listen to those cues. Yeah. There's, there's so much we can talk about, but I'm curious whether we can just get to the two questions um, and then we can discuss them in more depth. So as you know, the I am is saying that no one is broken. Everyone's doing the best they can. Even all these people in this power position, it's still their I am. And rather than judge them, let's try to understand who they are, why they do what they do based on the influence of those four domains, the home domain, social domain, the biological domain and the I see, the way I see myself, the way I see other people and the way I think they see me. So because these domains interact, a small change in any one domain can have a big effect. So given what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend either to our listeners or, or to the industry? Yeah. I mean, like, like, like my opinion will matter, but um <laughs> It's funny. It's interesting hearing you talk about that because I, I once, I mean, I was never actually going to do it, but I always joke like I want to write a book called Even Paris Hilton Has Pain, which could be a sense of how long ago this was. But but that notion that, yeah, you're talking about, and I think it's, you know, to, to do what, to, to write, you have to be able to grasp that. You have to be able to sort of insert yourself into characters you sometimes find loathsome. 
um, actors have to do that even more, you know, because um, you, I, I don't know an actor who would disagree with this. It's like, you never play the bad guy, you know, um, you're playing Adolf Hitler in a movie. You have to find a way to get up every morning and go, all right, how would my man Hitler get through the day and deal with all the people who are trying to make his life hell? You know, and um, it's an interesting thing. And obviously you don't want to apply it consistently to everybody in life. Um, Adolf Hitler, for instance. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a worthy thing that you're, you're talking about there. I mean, for me, it's just simple stuff. I feel like very frustrated kind of living in a world where it is, I guess, a little harder to get informed than it used to be. But in a lot of ways, it's easier um, because as chaotic and prone to misinformation uh, that the internet can be, you do have access to all the world's information at your fingertips. In fact, I once asked my friend Harlan, who was not only a great science fiction writer, but read everything in the genre. I laughed. I said, did anybody back in the day when everybody was predicting everything and getting everything right is there a single solitary science fiction story that predicted that one day we'll have the sum total of human knowledge at our fingertips and it will make everybody dumber? <laughs> and he laughed. He's like, no, no, you could not see that coming. And um, so, I mean, to me, it's like, you know, the trick to getting through life is you either have to shut down to the entire world and I'm incapable of doing that, or you have to do a little extra work to try to like make sure you are informed. And I think just like, you know, it kind of ties into another thing that I believe, which is a little more trivial, but, but I think every now and then um, just you read something, you see something on the news, somewhere else, an opinion piece, something that you just agree with 1000% that makes you feel good for agreeing with that you go. Yeah. Every word in this is true. The conclusions are correct. I am a good person for agreeing with it. Now take 15 minutes and do a little deep dive and confirm that yeah. and for, as opposed to just, and I think you should do this too. go, go after the information that, you know, is disinformation. I hate that term, but you know, misinformation, shall we say, um, but do it every now and then with something you believe in something you agree with and be, be open to the possibility that you might be surprised. Um, yeah. And that kind of goes hand in hand with this, something I believe very firmly. And this goes more to my line of work every now and then watch a movie you don't want to see. <laughs> yeah. My my daughter Sophie has a science comedy TV show, Science with Sophie, and one of the episodes is called Dogs, and it's looking at what you know was fake news. Is it real? And it's about you know these reporters who are saying you know are dogs real? Um, and you know there's one scene there. Some people say a dog looks like this, and another person say it looks like this. Well, which is it? It can't be both. And then Sophie, you know, says, "Do your own research." You know, and I think that's exactly what you're saying, Josh, is, you know, there are some things that are appealing, but right now there is, there's so much information out there and there's so many perspectives. And what the IM is saying is that each perspective has value, but I want to know why you're thinking it. I might not agree with it, right? but I want to look again, again, look at why you think that based on the influence of the domains. I want to respect your position, even if I don't agree with it. And, and yeah. that, that opens up dialogue. It, it can, up, it can at least. Yeah. Just try to get other people to sort of think that it's, it's because there is so much stuff out there just by the nature of the thing that is, you know, like when I was a kid, um, I mean, I was a comic book fan. I get 
I didn't read every comic book that came out, but I knew every comic book that came out. And I didn't see every movie that came out, but I knew every movie that had come out and I didn't watch every, but you knew all the, now it's like, it's impossible to keep up with any of that. There's so much stuff out there that would become, there's no monoculture left. I, I had a conversation recently just on Twitter back and forth with some much younger, like serious film people. And we were talking about a director who's, it wasn't, I was just saying that, that his, so a lot of his movies had fallen into the pattern of like, sure, they were strong women heroes, but invariably at the end, they're, they become whole people by either embracing their motherhood or their, their wifehood. Like they're not fully people until they decide to become wives or mothers. And obviously on an individual basis, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But if a filmmaker keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again, you're like, well, what's going on here? And I just made the comment that he was falling into the routine that Hollywood has done for 60, 70 years that we're slowly getting away from where no matter what an amazing character, Betty Davis or Joan Crawford got to play, by the end, they were either punished by being killed or by being reincorporated back into the family, which is not, it's, this is not a theory I have, you know, and, and this, this, this person wrote back to me, go, I've never heard of that. Give me a link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Times have changed, huh? Times have changed. That. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the second truth of the I am is, Everyone's got one. Everyone is interested through their IC domain in what you think or feel about them. And you know, that's going to have an effect on their biological domain because it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. You are part of someone's home or social domain. So this means you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Josh Olson, writer award-winning nominee oscar oscar loser we like <laughs> oscar loser what kind of influence do you want to be um i mean i look i'm a writer and secretly all of us want to be god so like i, I don't want to be an influence <laughs> i want to control everything but if i can't um i don't know you know we were talking about the union thing and the strike and it just sort of goes back to kind of a core belief i have um and it's hard to stand by this all the time because there are people who will test you and there are, you'll test yourself. But, you know, if I can help people recognize the danger of constantly punching each other and get them to focus a little bit more, I'm all for punching, by the way, don't get me wrong, but get them to focus a little bit more on punching up. Mm. Um, I'd be happy with that. It is one of the things that, that, you know, you come to understand, especially in Indian unions, you get people with wildly disparate lives you actually you get you know white racists and black people standing side by side and finding commonality in the struggle which eventually leads to commonality in the humanity to friendships being born and we are very much all in this together and our enemy is not each other um it is it is you know powerful corporations yes run by people who but you know who who set us up against each other to distract us from what they're doing and, you know, it gets hard to remember that a lot when people are saying and doing awful things. Um, but I think it's vital, you know, um, I think it's just essential that you have to recognize that and, and try to overcome that because nothing, nothing comes out of punching your neighbor in the face, but, you know, chaining yourself to like an Exxon headquarters, um, has an impact, <laughs> you know, making, making noise in groups about the ways that people with and, and companies with far too much power are hurting us is so much more important than us just squabbling amongst ourselves. Yeah. 
and and to come together around that one of one of my great wishes for human beings is that we can come together without needing to have a common enemy wouldn't that be great if if we really could just find a way to be this cooperative group because we all want the same thing we want to feel valued by somebody else yeah there isn't anybody that i met who doesn't want to feel valued but we spend so much time increasing our value by decreasing somebody else's. And that, I think, in part of the corporate world that you're talking about, that's, that's what's been going on, is this hierarchy, this division. And yet, each person, each human being, they want the same thing. I mean, is there a way to, to get that message out through film, through movie, by, you know, without being so, you know, yeah, I mean, I you know, people are always trying, and you either notice it or you don't, and sometimes it's better if you don't notice it. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think anytime you have an opportunity to kind of like get that across, I think it's it's a good thing to do. Um, you know, but but it is, it's it's, uh, um, you know, we we are involved, even if it's just talking climate change. You know, we are involved in a struggle for the future of our species. I don't think the future of the planet. Planet's gonna be fine either way. But, you know, I have a very young son and I will do whatever I can to ensure that uh, he has a shot at, you know, dying peacefully of an old age yeah. in, in a, you know, in a happy world or in a happy situation. And, um, you know, yelling at my neighbor, say, I don't have a neighbor who doesn't believe in climate change, but like calling him an asshole and punching him in the face doesn't do anything anymore yeah. than, you know, um, but getting him to work with me to you know focus upward and, and try to enact some societal change that that does have an impact yeah so those are the ways we can influence each other folks you get to choose the kind of influence it's, we all want to feel valued josh thank you so much for being on the show tonight really thank you appreciate thanks it. for having me okay we will see you all later bye folks bye mark bye tom bye.